according to Luke. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I, I covet, I'm desperate for the work of your Holy Spirit in the gift of teaching. May I only be used as a vessel that allows the power of Your Word to flow. And may You cause all of our hearts to be attentive to this Gospel in a way we have never been in our entire lives in the months to come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a series of preaching through the book of the Gospel according to Luke. First, let me make two personal notes about that. The first is that I am overwhelmed for two reasons. One is that it's narrative. <laughs> it, it means, this is going to mean something to a couple of you. It means there are large chunks of text. Seven days to deal with it. The second thing that overwhelms me is that we will be being confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry. And He tends to be very straightforward and confrontational. He not only went into the temple with a whip and turned over physically the tables of the money changers, He in His ministry in the Gospel of Luke was metaphorically turning over the theology and the thinking and the religiosity of the Bible people of His day. Which we are the Bible people today. And that is thrilling and it's scary. It's thrilling because in it we can trust Jesus right now who is alive by His Spirit in us. We can trust Him as He does this to us. It's scary because He is radical. And he demands radical 
lives. So, that's my first personal note. Second, actually, I just added one I was worshiping, and it, it did hit me. So, there's, the second one's twofold, too. Sometime early back in 1981, I don't know if it was Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. I didn't know the Bible. But as a lost, drunkard, pothead, God mercifully caused me to be hungry to read the Bible for the first time. And I found my way to red letters eventually. And they changed my life. The other part about this then is that I've never preached through any of the Gospels. I've read them numbers of times. But I've never preached through them, which means I've never worked my way exegetically, thoroughly, verse by verse, through any of the Gospels. Here at this church over the last seven plus years, other than four different topical series of sermons, I've preached through the book of Galatians, I've preached through the book of First John, Philippians, the book of Hebrews, and First Peter. All of which are epistles. They're letters written to the churches. Post-Christ resurrection. They're teaching and folding the meaning of them. And smaller little portions. And when you're directly teaching, it's, you're not dealing with narrative there. Now, we're going back to the central piece of what all those letters are about. We're going back to the theological slash historical period of about 35 years. And most of that mainly two, three years, which is the centerpiece of all existence and is the centerpiece of true Christianity. So let's just first, I want to just go back in your minds for a moment. We do this with movies all the time, period movies, etc. Sometimes we can go back, a lot of us, if we're old enough, we go back and we know it was early 70s to the 1980s, and we can talk, think about music and how music stopped after 1980 in Pink Floyd's The Wall. And so. But, but you've got a time frame about life because you live some. Well, let's just do that. Keep going all the way back to the first century. So not the 1930s, but the 30s. In about 33, 34, 35 A.D., Jesus is crucified. And He's raised. He appears for 40 days and teaches with many proofs of His resurrection. And then He's taken up. And the church is birthed at Pentecost. The church is Jewish. These are Jews. They're all Jews. They don't get it for the first week or two or first month or two or probably the first year or maybe two. The Gentiles can be saved. Okay, then down the road, this Jesus sect hating Pharisee named Saul from Tarsus, trained, very educated in Jerusalem, in the Gamaliel. He is holding the coat of those who were stoning the first martyr of this Jesus sect, Stephen. 
And then later, he is really on fire to get permission from the religious leaders to imprison and jail as many Christians as he can as he's on his way up to the city of Damascus because he's sick of this message of Jesus. And he is converted miraculously and he didn't ask for it on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him. And as one untimely born... In other words, he didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't with Peter, James, and John, and Bartholomew, and Matthew. He wasn't there. After the church's birth for probably at least two years, he's against it persecuting the church. And as one untimely born, Jesus made him a special apostle to the Gentiles. And then sometime around there too, God knocked, Peter upside the head with a vision to get it through his head that Gentile people can be saved by the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, with that incident with Cornelius. Okay, so picture that. Then you're about now late 30s, early 40s. And then Paul starts his missionary journeys. We see three of them in the New Testament. Over the next 20 years, Paul and his band of of workers going throughout the Gentile world of the Roman Empire. You can see it in the book of Acts. Time goes on. Paul has written Romans already. He's written First and Second Thessalonians. He's written the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatian churches. He's written First and Second Corinthians. These letters exist. We're about 58, 59. Everything you read in the book of Acts, where it ends after Paul's journey to Rome, the shipwreck on the island of Malta, finally after a few months they get another ship and they get to Rome and Paul is in house arrest and Acts of the Apostles ends. There's Paul. All of that has happened. It's AD 62 now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not exist yet. So, picture that. So what is this? What do we have here? Let me start with those basic general questions that we should ask then. Four. Who wrote it? When was it written? To whom was it written? And why was it written? So, you got the book of Luke open, right? See where it says the gospel according to Luke? Luke didn't write that. But we add that. Okay, so look at the text. See who it says who wrote it. Uh, Unlike Paul writing letters, Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Corinth. You know who wrote it. It doesn't say who did this. Okay. First thing, therefore, that we need to note and notice is that whoever wrote the Gospel according to Luke is the same person who wrote the Acts of the Apostles. What I mean is, look at Luke chapter 1. Start there at verse 3. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now you turn over to Acts of the Apostles, verse 1. In the first book, that's the Gospel according to Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when He was taken up. And then He continues the story for the next 30 years. A couple facts. When it comes to amount of words, the Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. When you put Luke and Acts, because this is what this thing is, it's really one book with part one and part two. When you put them together, the author of Luke-Acts wrote more in the New Testament than any other New Testament author, including Paul, who has 13 books in the New Testament. So, why do we think it's Luke? The first reason is because Luke, the writer here, is not an eyewitness to the ministry and life of Jesus. He relied on careful study of tradition and writings about his life. Look at verses 2 to 3 in chapter 1. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So, we know He's not an apostle. He's not walking with Jesus during His earthly ministry. Secondly, we know He is a very close companion with the Apostle Paul. The way we know that is this. We call it in the book of Acts, the we sections. The word W-E. First person, plural. As you're reading the Acts of the Apostles, third person, plural, is throughout up till chapter 16. And they went, and they did that, and Peter, James, and John did that, and Paul did this, and Paul did that, and then you end up in Philippi, and all of a sudden, it changes to, and we. In chapter 20, on the journey to Jerusalem, to deliver the money where the Apostle Paul was almost beaten to death and arrested. We, 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 get on the ship to Rome. Luke, or whoever, is on the ship and is shipwrecked with Paul, and on the island of Malta, ends up in Rome. The we section, so we know that. So when you open up Paul's letters, we we have numbers of candidates, as you read Paul's letters, of these close associates of his, and friends that ministered with him in his missionary journeys. And we come up with names like Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Timothy, Titus, Silas, Epaphras, Barnabas, and Luke. Why Luke? From very early on, the early tradition of the church has always 
and without debate attributed the two volumes, Luke-Acts, to this Luke who hung out with Paul. These two works, Luke and Acts, in AD 95 were clearly copied, copied, copied and used in the churches. Clement of Rome is quoting from the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Someone just click that thing as people were freezing. Click it. So that's AD 95. In 150 AD, Justin Martyr attributes these works to that Luke who was a close companion of Paul. And the very first evidence that we have now of any compilation of what are those New Testament canonical books was about 170 A.D. And in that list, it attributes these two works to Luke, the companion of Paul. So, who is Luke? He's mentioned three times by the name Luke. I mean, the we sections, he's all over. But three times in the New Testament, by his name. First in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. At the end of the letter, Paul's a lot of times as Paul's writing, Hey Paul, don't forget to say I said howdy. You know, his buddies would do this a lot. And he says in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. As does Demas. In the book of Philemon, verses 23 and 24, at the end of that letter, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, Paul writes at the end, Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescents, has gone to Galatia. No, Paul's in prison. And Titus to Damascia. Luke alone is with me. So, not only as we see there, was Luke by profession a medical doctor. Luke, I'm pretty convinced, was a Gentile. Now, why? Because back there again, in Colossians chapter 4, you look up from a few verses where we just read. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Now watch. These guys here are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God. Now by that, he doesn't mean this crazy circumcision theology that he dealt with. He said, these are my, like, like Paul himself, I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. I was circumcised as a baby as a Jew. These are my only other Jewish guys who have come to Christ that work with me. And a couple of verses later, in verse 14, then he adds, oh, Luke, who wasn't included there, Gentile. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, who is also... A Gentile. So this means that who's Luke? He was a very intimate, close associate with Paul for years on end when you follow the we section of Acts. He was a medical doctor. 
some tradition, but it's only tradition, and it's late second century. It says, well, he lived to 84, and he was a guy who was from Antioch of Syria, but we don't really know. And we know, though, he was a Gentile. The way I've racked my brain, I, I never thought about it before the last couple of weeks. That would make Luke the only non-Jewish writer of the whole Bible. So, it is Luke, convinced. Church has always been convinced with no disputes. When did he write it? Okay, huh. The end of Acts takes place around, we think, 58, 59 A.D. So he couldn't have written that before that happened, so it's got to be after that. He, it would be very strange, because Luke is not only a Christian, he not only believes in Christ, he has a theology and he has a purpose, and we're going to get there. But he's a really good historian. And it seems that if Jerusalem were already absolutely leveled to the ground, as Jesus prophesied, which doesn't happen until A.D. 70, it seems it's really weird he didn't mention that. We think it's before that. But, you know, a stronger argument is this. It's the Apostle Paul was executed under Nero in the year 67. If this were after the year 67, doesn't it seem kind of strange with the book of Acts? He'd just kind of end it with Paul alive in Rome at the end of the 50s without his... It just doesn't make sense. So, most scholars therefore think... We're post-62, and here's the other thing. Probably, probably Mark is the first gospel written, coming out in around 62. And most likely, Luke has Mark in front of him too. So he's probably writing around the year 65, 64, 66, somewhere in there where this two volumes come out. To whom did he write it? It's right there in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, some people try to make a big deal about his name, Theophilus, Theos, means God. Phyllis, friend, ooh, all Christians, he means just, you know, friend of God. People, I'm writing to you. That's not what he means. There's a real guy named Theophilus, and you, and you can really see it when he calls him most excellent. Same term he uses in Acts a number of times, referring to, to some kind of Roman hierarchy, ranking official, etc. So he's probably some Roman official. We see that he's been instructed in Christianity to some extent. Probably he's a convert. Probably. Okay, that's what we think. So he's writing to Theophilus. Why? Now that's a really strange question for a lot of, just your normal question. We mean why? Just here. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we ask the same thing about letters and then you can get Christians to start to see, oh, that's right, it wasn't, written in a vacuum, there are reasons why Paul might be writing. And we usually don't think that way about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
but you should. That's why I wanted to set you up. What's going on? It's 30 years later, and there is no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John yet. Mark just comes out. What's going on? Well, first of all, all four of these writers in these Gospels, they are not just biographies in the strict sense. Like someone might want to write a biography of Winston Churchill, and you know, it comes out in 2,000 pages, some of them. In other words, they're going, to just, they're going to work and work, and what can we know, and everything we can know about his life. This is not what these are. That's why many of you have heard, and most likely true, Matthew does have probably a Jewish audience. that He's talking to Jews, and he's going to emphasize, because there's so much, every one of these Gospels could have been so much bigger but, okay, there's, why am I going to choose this? They, they are choosing particular emphasis as they're going to do their accounts for particular purposes. So Matthew's saying, Jews, Scripture after Scripture, He is the Son of David. He's the prophesied Messiah. Mark's got this Roman slant and just picture Him very quickly. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And there He is. He's the suffering servant and dies for the sins of the world. John, later on, which is last Gospel written, is clearly writing the Jew or Gentile of the whole world just to show this Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm writing so that you'll believe and have eternal life. And so, why Luke? One of the major commentators on the Gospel of Luke now, Daryl Bach, suggests four points. And as you read through Luke more and more, really think he's on to something. Because, okay, what's going on with Theophilus? He was a Gentile. And not only Theophilus, a lot of Gentiles. There's questions, okay? That's why he's writing to him. And one of them's probably... Make it more clear. How is this working? I mean, Jerusalem's you know thousands of miles away from us. We hear this. We we got all these stories of Jesus and a lot of his sayings, and we we have that. And we keep we got the Hebrew Scripture. We love the Scripture now, the Hebrew Scripture or the Greek translation of it. We're loving this, but it, this is a very Jewish thing. And what is this that so many Gentiles now are that are Christians? What's happening? How could they be saved? You'll see this. Emphasis in Luke. And, and, and that's secondly goes on this other question during the early church with someone like Theophilus, many Gentiles. There's this paradox all over the Roman Empire. Because in every city there are Jews and there are synagogues, and Paul would always go there and preach first. But predominantly, the vast majority of Jews are rejecting. Jesus. And the church is looking more and more just Gentile, not Jewish. And so what is what's going on here? Luke answers that question in the book of Acts. He's got a structure to Acts when he says, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the answer that he is giving in Acts is this. The Gentiles are not shooing away the Jews to the Messiah. It's the Jews who are turning away the Gentiles and this Savior. That's His answer. He sets that up in the book of Luke. 
It's really clear in his structure. We'll see it in just a moment. But thirdly, he's got this very clear answer to the question. Theophilus, you want to know how is it that a tortured, bloody, suffering Jesus is the answer to God's eternal plan laid out in Scripture. And there it is. The crucifixion, His death, His resurrection. And then that sets Acts up for this central message in Acts that they preached. The center of it is this. God raised this cold, hard, two and a half, three day, dead person. It doesn't happen now. It can't be resuscitation. From the dead in a new glorified body. That's crazy. And that's the message of Acts. And it's clearly set up in volume one of Luke's. And then, fourthly, Luke is answering this question. What does it mean to respond to Jesus? What does your life look like? And we get this big main emphasis in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and what it looks like and who they look like. To receive Him. So let me just very briefly, in this intro, as you pick up Acts, there's a basic large structure of the way Luke sets it up and what he's doing. Chapters 1 into 4. God became a human being through the Virgin Mary. He's really human. He really is the promised one. He's really God. Part two. John introduces him. And you got Jesus' ministry from chapter four all the way up into chapter nine. His ministry up north in Galilee. Healing, casting out demons. Preaching the kingdom. Then from chapter 9, all the way up into the middle of chapter 19, you got this progression going down south on his journey to Jerusalem. Two things are happening in that big section. Luke is making clear that the opposition to Jesus by the Jewish leadership is getting more vicious and stronger and stronger. Theophilus! This is not an accident. It's happening in Jesus. Watch! And at the same time while he's doing that, he's giving very intimate teachings to those who will be saved and believe in Him. And then that sets up, here we go, to the pinnacle of it all, the last week of his life. And the entry into Jerusalem, his suffering, his death, up into chapter 23. And then chapter 24, his exile. So that's the intro to the entire series. Let's spend the rest of the time looking at one sentence. Because those first four verses 
are one sentence where Luke himself now introduces the book here. And what we're going to see here is that in the Gospel, according to Luke, he's got this focus in order to show, here's his focus, that Christianity is rooted in verifiable history. Even though Luke did not converse with, hang out with, sit on a boat with Jesus, touch Him, neither did Theophilus, neither did any of us. His point is, you can be changed. You can be redeemed. You can be saved by this Jesus. But, for that to happen, you have to be persuaded that the historical personage and what he proclaimed and what happened in Jerusalem by the Jewish hierarchy and the Roman hierarchy putting him to death and that he was bodily resurrected from the dead. You have to be persuaded that that is not just nice religious talk that helps your life, but that it actually happened. See, Luke knows 1 Corinthians probably better than any of us do. He's read that letter so many times. He's hanging out with Paul. He is right on board with the Apostle Paul, as Paul said, if literally, historically, in time, in place, that dead, rock-hard body, if it did not come up out of the grave, become alive forevermore, and eat fish, and talk, and, and teach for the next five weeks, then Christianity is a sham. That's where Luke's coming from. That's what he's saying in these first four verses as we look at them. And that flies in the face of the air we breathe in our culture. Our culture just riddled what we, with what we call now postmodern relativism, where there's no such thing as truth to be discovered and known out there, especially religious truth. Instead, truth is what you make of it. It's just truth is defined as your own personal subjective persuasion about something, and that's true for you. Truth in our culture is not this idea that there is truth that exists, whether I believe it or not. Truth is created by you subjectively. You might have, like I do, a family member or friends. <laughs> That's their philosophy of life. To tell them, this is my experience, this is who I am. Let me tell you why I'm a Christian. Like Luke. What I'm saying, this is what I'm convinced of. Now, you've got to judge. You've got to weigh it yourself. But that 
literally, actually, historically, with verifiable proofs, I'm saying I'm banking my life and my existence upon this man who really was resurrected from the dead. Historically. Oh, that's great. Awesome. So happy for you. And they really are. Because they don't have a category for reality. That there is such a thing as truth outside of them. And that dominant relativistic philosophy of our culture is damning people to hell. And they're in church. And they're outside of church. Because part of what it is to be saved is to subjectively, yes, really, yes, me, not you, yes, embrace the message of this historical account of the Lord Jesus Christ, of who He claimed to be, of His actual torturous death as a substitutionary guilt offering where God's wrath was poured out and then His exaltation coming out of the grave and the promise that He'll come back. And when you don't have a category to believe that something like that actually might be true, it doesn't make sense to me biblically how that person can be saved. See, this means that Christianity is not just another religious philosophy based on the speculations of some great religious thinker like Jesus. It's not what it is according to Luke. It is the Creator of the universe breaking into human history in the person of Jesus Christ and uniquely revealing this God to us and doing a work that saves sinners from their eternal lot if they embrace Him. There are many Christians today, many church-going people today that speak and act as if the Holy Spirit's work is to come and to replace historical evidence. To replace biblical propositions means statements of truth with arguments. We don't need those. I got the Spirit. I just, Jesus told me this. This is not the way Luke understands faith to be. He does not say to this Gentile Roman Theophilus, you're troubled? This is bugging you how to, how to figure all this stuff out, Theophilus? Okay. S- stop thinking so much. Just pray. Just believe. He doesn't do that. He writes a 52 chapter book and to say, here's the evidence. Think through it. Get it. Here's Luke's words. 
Just, just listen for a moment. This is where he's coming from. It's verse 3 of chapter 1 of Acts, so just listen. And Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering. Let me just read it again. Not so choppy. And Jesus presented Himself alive to them after His suffering, quote, by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. Okay. Now let's get to the sentence. How can we know that Luke's account in 64, 65 A.D. is true. In his introduction here, he mentions several things that lead us to that conclusion. Look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us of Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection. Okay? Okay, so first of all, He says, look, there were many written documents of what Jesus did. Of what He said. They existed. They existed orally, and a lot of that oral tradition was clearly written down and passed down. And as I said earlier, most likely... Now, Luke also has what we have in the Gospel according to Mark. Okay. So he says, there's a lot of testimony here. And a lot of it exists and it's written. Then in verse 2, he says, not only the quantity, the quality. Just as, where's this come from? Just as those who... From the beginning, from the beginning means they're all along with Jesus in His ministry and His death post-resurrection. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. And so Luke includes himself among those who have received reports directly from the eyewitnesses and the ministers. Which I'm just, Luke means the apostles here. That's what he means when he says, the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. Now, I'm going to, while I'm really convinced of that, I want to flip again over to Luke. Volume 2, called Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. In verses 21 to 22, remember the count, Judas is gone. Okay, we've got to replace him. What's the qualifications here for apostolic ministry? Luke says, here it is, this is what happened. So one of the men who have accompanied us apostles during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John 
until the day when He was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to His resurrection. So, he says, the apostles, they witness. What do you mean? They pass on what they saw and heard and touched and they were there throughout His whole ministry. And after He came out of the grave on many differing occasions for five weeks, talking with Him, touching Him, watching Him put fish in His mouth, they witnessed and passed this on. And don't think they're stupid. This stuff is being written down all the time. John, what did you say he said then? You got it. Let's just keep it in our minds. They know how to write. There's lots of... Okay, got that? Hey, John, do we get that right? Peter, do we, do we say that right? This stuff exists. When you're in Corinth 25 years later, even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't exist, they know these stories. They got all kinds of pieces of fragments in writing and oral stories that the apostles are bringing to them, etc., and the traditions that are being passed on. They know what happened on the night before he was betrayed. They're actually reenacting that as a community already all the time. Okay, so all this stuff exists. Acts says, okay, here it is. We're talking about eyewitnesses where this comes from. And he calls him, Luke calls him, ministers of the word. Yes, they're not merely eyewitnesses. They're passing on the tradition and they're teaching the meaning. They're apostles. So he says, here's quantity of evidence that I, Luke, he's a pretty bright guy. He's a medical doctor. And he ends up being a really good first century historian, according to those who know how history was done back then. And the quality of the stuff that Luke had to work with. Now, verse 3, Luke says, based on that foundation, the reliable eyewitness evidence in various different forms, written, oral, personal, Luke says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke says, now, what I did is I followed all this material and worked on it very closely. Now, literally, instead of for some time past, I think the better translation is from the beginning. Meaning, I went ba- I'm back to the beginning which you'll see in his gospel, he is, like no other gospel writer is, with the angel Gabriel. Okay. Think about this now. This is Luke. Look, he's run into Peter numbers of times, okay? And he knows Mark, Barnabas' cousin, Mark was very close with Peter. We don't know who else he's wondered. He's hanging out for years with the Apostle Paul. Okay, Now, he's got a lot of written material. He's on that journey. Finally, after being with Paul for numbers of years through these missionary journeys, Paul's finally saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul! The Spirit's saying bad things are going to happen. I'm going. Luke is with him the whole time. 
When they meet secretly in Jerusalem, because the Jerusalem church is, you know, Jewish church. You know who the head of the Jewish church is in the first century? Who became the head honcho there? Lots of elders, but the, one of the, the main guy? Jesus' brother, James. And in Acts, Luke's very clear. He's in the room with James. We were there. Okay, now, to think that Luke's going to write this, and he's not going to say, James, let's have dinner tonight. Did your mom ever tell you what happened? Okay, that, that's just, how many, the testimony is his other siblings finally were saved too. How is he not going to talk to these people? Luke, after going to Jerusalem where Paul was arrested, he had to be escaped from there under the Roman guard and go down to Caesarea. Luke is there in the Jerusalem, Judea area and Galilee ain't that far up. He's there for two years not leaving Paul. I'm just going to imagine. The way I did the math, 80, 58 or so, Mary could be as young as 78. Maybe she's 81, 82. If she survived that long. And if she's alive, don't think he's going to talk to her. Okay. Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write, here, this is what seemed good, for me to write an orderly account for you, your problems, Theophilus. Now, finally, look, here's his purpose. It's not only his purpose for Theophilus, it's for us. That you may have certainty concerning the thing that have been taught. His purpose is to persuade so that we would have certainty concerning that which is radically counterintuitive. What I mean is this. Christianity is nuts. Okay. Virgins do not get pregnant. And dead men after three days don't rise from the dead forever to never die again. It doesn't happen. And his claim is, this isn't religious stuff that helps you in your life. His claim is, this is historically true. Which makes it the center of why anyone exists. And he says to this new believer, I'm writing it this way. I'm being very careful about the truth here. So that within you, your certainty concerning the gospel will go deeper. That's his point. And as I started off the sermon, it's easy now, I'm 30 years down the road now. I was a know-nothing, numb-nut at age 19. And there was something. Let me just imagine it was Luke. Don't know what 
which one it was. I'm reading the narrative. And I'm changed. I was persuaded. So as we go through Luke, week by week, month by month, and we realize the importance of being persuaded concerning what actually happened in history, which should translate to, therefore now, if you say, say, and say I'm a believer, should translate to the importance of persuading others of the historicity of Christianity in what it is. Now, as we do that, as we go through Luke, never think that this rules out the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because Luke wouldn't have. Theophilus wouldn't have. I got news for you. People who saw him and touched Jesus wouldn't have actually owned up to the historical truth of who he is without the work of the Holy Spirit. That's Luke's opinion. I quote him. I'll get to the quote in a minute. As we, over outside the city of Philippi, missionary journey, never heard the gospel, and we're down by the river, and we see some religious people kind of singing, and Paul gives them some history with meaning, meaning the theology of it. He's preaching about a real historical character named Jesus, and Luke himself says concerning one of these ladies named Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's what happened to me at age 19. I heard gospel quotations my whole life. And then mercifully, that Lord opened my heart. And it's true for all of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian. As we sit under Luke's account of this glorious good news of Jesus Christ, if God does not Open our hearts. Then it will be in vain. For us. It's not because the Holy Spirit's work is to come and to replace historical evidence that we'll see. Or to replace statements of commands and reasons that you'll hear from Jesus' lips. He doesn't do that. What we need is for Him to constantly soften our heart so we'll get it and own up to it.
what we're desperate for all the time when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit is to remove our sinful predispositions that somehow, as even believers, churchgoers, will cause us to rationalize. That was nice what Jesus said. It was for them, not me. And if you've bought into some present-day evangelical theology that Jesus was like an Old Testament guy and He was before the cross. So what He's saying is kind of law. And then, okay, then Paul comes and we got, okay, we're this side of the cross and it's all changed. Don't believe it. Jesus knows what He's doing and He is not preaching a different message than He had His Apostle Paul unfold. Let the truth of what Jesus unfolds through the Apostle Paul about the meaning of His death and His resurrection and justification by faith be the foundation upon which we hear our Master. Oh, to the sanctification of our souls. And here's the thing. We believers can trust Him no matter how much He meddles. Let's pray. Lord, that's my my prayer for us, not only this morning, but as You allow us to work our way through this glorious narrative of Your life by Your servant Luke, that You would catch us up, that You would powerfully confront us, that we would hear the jewels of your mouth, that we would feel so undone and thus be all the more ready to understand why you are our good news. Thank you, Lord, to the glory of your name. Amen.